Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 186 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen. This week on the podcast, I was joined by conservationist, author, filmmaker, and photographer Jerry Monkman. Jerry is revered in the Northeast United States as a photography powerhouse, having authored eight books which have inspired many to take up photography in Maine, New Hampshire, New York, and Vermont. Jerry is also known for his amazing conservation documentary videos, which have had major positive impacts on the protection of critical public lands in his area. Jerry and I discussed some interesting topics this week, including his journey through the years as a photographer, using photography to conserve open spaces in public land, photo guidebooks and their impact on the craft and various locations, the why of outdoor photography, how photography has changed since the 1980s, how to balance the commercial needs of a landscape photographer and messages of conservation, and lots more. Over on Patreon this week, join over 140 of your peers in supporting the podcast financially and listen to Jerry and I talk about the importance of thinking about what we are trying to say with our photographs. Okay, let's get to the show. Awesome. Well, Jerry Monkman, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure, Matt. Excited to uh, talk with you. Yeah, and shout out to uh, Ben Williamson, who kind of helped make the connection and get this going. <laughs> cool. Yeah, love Ben. He's uh, been a friend for, boy, seven, eight years now. And uh, I wish I saw him more. We only live a couple hours away. But yeah, he's an amazing photographer and an amazing all-around guy. Yeah, he's, he's he seems like a really awesome dude. Um, and if you if you call him a friend, then you must also be pretty awesome. So, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I won't. Yes, I won't. I won't fight that. Um, he's dealing with <laughs> with having newborn twins at the moment, though. So I'm not. I haven't talked to him much lately. Right. Yeah. Well, so for people that aren't familiar with you and your your photography, Jerry, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, how you got into this wild and crazy world of, of nature photography. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, so I'm, uh, I live in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, on the New Hampshire seacoast, about a half mile from saltwater. So for you uh, people who are landbound in the middle of the country like you, Matt, we do have uh, seacoast here in New Hampshire. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I grew up in Illinois near Chicago. and um, but I was fortunate enough that my my parents built a house uh, in the basically in the middle of the woods in Illinois, which is not something you hear too often. But um, so I grew up kind of being lost in in the woods and cornfields and, and stuff like that, and just sort of always had this uh, attachment to nature because of that. Um, mm. And started taking pictures in middle school, but never really thought of it as a career kind of option. I was a business major the University of Illinois and really expected to work in the music business. My brother was a musician um, and I did for a couple of years, but uh, I have way too calm and nice of a personality for that world. I learned at an early age <laughs> and uh, uh, quickly moved to the New England area with my wife, Marcy, and discovered the outdoors here and happened to meet Galen Rowell on a book signing tour in probably 1988. Um, and at the time I was just working a, you know, a little job in a mall while I was trying to figure out what I was going to do after college. And 
met him and realized that, boy, there's some people who actually spend their lives doing adventurous things in the outdoors and taking pictures and, and they make a living doing that. And I thought, Hey, I'll just do that. And, uh, <laughs> just like, yeah, yeah, it's no big deal. I'll just do that. Yeah, I'll just buy a camera and, uh, start hiking and um, I'll be good. Um, so that, that's sort of where the spark came from. Um, but obviously as I'm sure you and your listeners know, it's really <laughs> a lot harder than that to make this into a business. Um, but I, so I kind of did it as a hobby for the nineties while I worked as a software engineer in the Boston area and then up here in New Hampshire. Um, but I always kind of, after a few years of computer stuff, I kind of knew I, I wanted to be a photographer and be in the outdoors more regularly. And I really felt compelled even then to use photography as a way to further conservation. Um, and specifically here in new England. And, uh, that's kind of what I built my career around. It's always, it's always been my focus. There's always been sort of little side paths here and there between then and now, but, um, still today after 20 plus years of doing that, that, that is my focus. Almost all my assigned work is, um, for conservation organizations or maybe magazine work about conservation issues. That's awesome that you've been able to carve out that niche. Why, why was that um, focus, uh, no pun intended, why was that focus in your photography important to you to conserve open spaces? Well, I think part of it was just from where I grew up and having that connection to the land. And um, I definitely was one of those kids who I think benefited from having easy access to open space um, from a mental health standpoint. You know, I didn't you know, come from a poor background or a, a really broken background, but I did have um, dysfunction in my family like a lot of us do. And, and I think just being outside all the time really kept me sane as a teenager. Um, it was a little easier then because we didn't have social media and smartphones. But, um, but I always felt like because of that, I, I wanted to ensure that there were wild and open spaces, both for, for wildlife and, you know, other flora and fauna, but also for, um, people to be able to, um, you know, stay whole. I think we need, we need open space to stay whole as humans and to maintain that connection to nature. And, um, being in the Northeast, which, you know, it's one of the oldest developed parts of, uh, North America. Um, I thought that, you know, we need to conserve what we have left and that's just what I wanted to do. And I, and I knew I wasn't really cut out for a desk job, so I didn't really want to work for a conservation organization. Um, cause I just wanted to be out with my camera. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of, um, photographing towards that purpose, how, how do you do that? Um, I mean, I'm obvious, I mean, I, I mean, it, it sounds simple enough, but I'm guessing that through the years you've kind of developed a, a way of seeing the landscape and seeing nature in a way that perhaps um, serves that purpose. And I'm curious how that works for you. Yeah. You know, it's definitely been a journey and it cha has changed a lot. Um, and I think different photographers have different approaches to that. Um, you know, a lot of photographers have a science background and work closely with scientists to do their conservation work and, and I do some of that, but um, for the most part, I work with sort of land conservation organizations that where the big focus has been, and this was, you know, 
this was guided by my clients over the years was to really find ways to engage people with the landscape. Um, so my photography has really sort of morphed from pure sort of landscape photography and nature photography when I first started to including more sort of recreation photography um, in the late 90s and 2000s as I started to work with organizations like the Trust for Public Land and the Nature Conservancy and to now include, still include those aspects, but also include um, the ways we use the natural environment and how we can still sort of maybe extract resources like wood or um, shellfish or fisheries, things like that in sustainable ways. Um, so it's, you know, sort of documenting all these things and it's, it's definitely changed over time for me. Yeah. Let's talk about that. How, how has it changed? Yeah. So I, you know, when I started it definitely, I envisioned myself being the guy who just went out by myself or with my wife, hiked to beautiful spots, found that iconic landscape shot and took that and, you know, hopefully got it right because it was all slide film back then um, <laughs> and went home and be done. Um, and that worked for a while, but then, you know, my clients definitely saw a benefit to including people in my photos. And that meant I had to learn how to do that. <laughs> you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't interested in that at first, but I, I was interested in, in doing what was necessary for my clients to, to do their work. Um, so I had to learn kind of, you know, adventure photography on the fly, some environmental portraiture kind of stuff on the fly. Um, and that was hard for me. I still feel like I'm, I'm learning that at times. Um, but it, it was all a way to, to better connect the viewer to these wild places um, for fundraising or telling stories about the importance of, um, of conserving these places. I think mm -hmm. it worked really well for a lot of my clients, for them to be able to go, say, even to, you know, place like New York and give a presentation on adding land to Baxter State Park in Maine, which is one of our iconic wilderness parks in New England. Um, and these might have been older folks who had the money to contribute, but aren't going to be ever going there most likely. Um, mm -hmm. But even for them to be able to envision maybe their kids or their grandkids, you know, fly fishing on a, on a trout stream in this kind of wild place and having a part in protecting that really helps um, connect people to, to the land and, and really helps, um, helps with uh, those conservation efforts. Yeah. How have you seen um, the industry, change since since you got started in the 90s like what what are some of the shifts that you've had to make in order to respond to those some of those changes um well when i started like most young photographers i kind of i'd do whatever i needed to to kind of cobble together income so um back then you know most of my income was from stock photography or um workshops. And then I added some guidebooks that I wrote into the mix in 2000 um, and for the 2000s. So it was sort of, you know, business-wise, it was kind of this hodgepodge of different sort of businesses related to photography. And I always saw things like the books and the stock kind of funding the conservation work I did. Although a lot of the stock I sold was for conservation purposes. Um, mm -hmm. With digital photography and even, I mean, more importantly, digital distribution of photography. Obviously, the stock photo part of that mix changed significantly. Um, mm -hmm. So in the past, you know, my clients usually would 
kind of licensed stock photos from me. I, I might get eight or 10 assignments a year. Um, and then I'd teach some workshops. I'd sell some books and that sort of made it up. Um, and literally like I think stock, stock and the books um, and workshops was probably 80% of my income back then. Um, now it's probably mm-hmm. about 15% of my income. So the change for me has <laughs> been um, learning on this, how to survive on a little less, <laughs> um, but also doing more assignment work. And also during this you know, time period, um, conservation groups got much more savvy in their communications. Um, you know, when I started, you know, the, the big sort of national and international groups were very, you know, savvy in that, making their magazines and slick annual reports and that kind of stuff. But more regional and smaller land trusts really didn't do a lot of that kind of marketing. Um, and that's changed a lot over the, the 20 years that I've been working, especially in, in my region. Um, so assignment work is now probably 80% of, of my income. Um, so that's been a big change in, in how I work and, you know, and it changes what I shoot and where I get to shoot. <laughs> um, you know, whereas before a lot, you know, 80% of the time I was kind of just going where I felt like going to shoot that week. Um, and now it's more geared towards, um, where I'm going on assignment. So that's changed a lot. Yeah. I mean, not to, uh, create more competition for yourself, but, I'd be curious to learn like if other people are interested in um, trying to get assignment work, like what does that process look like now? If someone were starting from scratch, uh, it seems like it would be a fairly difficult thing to get into. Um, Got me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, And I'm laughing because your listeners don't know this, but when Ben Williamson recommended me to you, his basic introduction to me was Jerry is terrible at social media. Um, <laughs> which <laughs> I didn't know how to take that exactly. Cause I try sometimes, you know, <laughs> but um, I think it's changed. I mean, for me, uh, you know, I'm lucky that, you know, most of my assignment work comes now from word of mouth and, and just a existing cadre of, of loyal clients um, but I think most, um, you know, it's still sales, right? I mean, it's like any kind of sales, you kind of find the type of clients you need to sell to and you figure out what they're doing and, and find the ones that are going to mix with what you're doing or what you want to do. And then you just find ways to let them know you want to work with them and and why you want to work with them and, and just keep, you know, reminding them one way or the other every once in a while. Um, you know, it's hard. I, I just shot a, a, a uh, project um, for a feature shoot for the Nature Conservancy's National Magazine, and you know, I've worked on a regional basis for them for 25 years. I've sold some stock photography in their magazine here and there over that time, and I've always wanted to shoot a feature for them. And they've known about me for 25 years, and I just got to do it like two weeks ago. So <laughs> sometimes it just takes a lot of consistency and persistence and patience, um, but mm-hmm. I. I do think the key is is identifying those outlets that match your work and what you want to do and um and that you can do just you know these like these days just online researching finding places that are uh have a certain style that you seem to fit and um just letting them know you exist yeah 
That hasn't worked for me yet, but I <laughs> I think part of part of what I appreciated about what you just said is the the idea that it takes a long time to build those relationships and and it's not something that's probably going to happen overnight. Right, and literally, you know, some of my best clients are clients that I wanted to work for for 5 years or 10 years and like send a mailing or an email every quarter for all that time with no luck whatsoever. And then someone leaves the company, someone new comes in, their photographer moves to another part of the country, something happens like that. And they actually need someone new to work with. And that's kind of how you fall into these sometimes because, you know, people like to work with who they're comfortable with, who they already know is going to produce what they um, need. And they're, you know, they don't take as many chances on new people as, as we'd all like them to, <laughs> um, right. for, you know, for good reason, you know, no one has totally. a, a ton of budget <laughs> to do that stuff, you know? Um, so, you know, and I've literally gotten jobs because another photographer passed away. It's kind of like, <laughs> Oh wow. Bad karma, I think, but you know, it's, I mean, it, you know, I, not to make light of that, but it's almost sometimes that hard to, to get into a place. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just, be consistent, be patient. Well, and I, I understand that you also have um, written and have a lot of pictures in photo guidebooks for a variety of types of uh, outdoor, I guess, recreational purposes. And I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit about those guidebooks, um, what kind of guidebooks you have. And and I, th- I think I have some follow-up questions that might kind of weave into the to what we were just talking about as well. So uh, tell us a little bit about those. Sure. Um, yeah, I feel like the book writing part of my career is in the rear view mirror right now. I haven't done a new one in five or six years, but um, for the 2000s and I guess, you know, from 2000 to 2015, I, I did, a, you know, about ten, eight or 10 books. Um, and several of them were basically outdoor adventure guides. So hiking, biking, paddling guides to places like the White Mountains in New Hampshire um, or Acadia National Park. And then um, did a couple of books on fall foliage, a couple of picture books, um, a photographer's guide to Acadia, as well as the adventure guide. And then um, an actual guide to outdoor photography itself back in 2012. Um, and yeah, you know, I mean, I came... So I feel like the world has changed so much <laughs> in that 15 years. You know, when I, my first few guidebooks came out, everyone still bought a guidebook before they'd go to a national park or go to the White Mountains to go hiking, even if they were only going to be there for a weekend. Um, right, that right. Was, that, that was really the best way to do it. You know, you might, if you really didn't need to go on a big hike, you could ask a ranger or something just for a quick suggestion. But that was kind of how people figured this stuff out. Um, so I kind of feel like those books for me are kind of fading due to just the internet and social media and the ability to Mm -hmm. find quick and easy ways to find two or three hikes in a place. Um, But at the time they were just, they were amazing projects for me to cut my teeth on doing sort of long-term projects, learning how to write. I wasn't trained as a writer Um, and just, you know, forcing myself to be outside a lot those years I was working on those guidebooks and of course at the same time getting to to do my photography while I was doing those um so I loved doing those the Acadia books always actually sold pretty well till just a couple of years ago um so that, that was nice too um and then uh yeah and then 
a couple of picture books I did, you know, that's, those are what photographers always dream about, right? Is doing a right. coffee table books. Um, so I got to do three of those. Um, and yeah, I still have a fond place in my heart for those. No one buys them anymore. And I still have them on my website. So if, if you do go out and buy them, I'm not sure I have any. So I might have to. <laughs> so I, I, I would go buy it on Amazon. I hate to say that, but <laughs> um, for your listeners. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not even sure I have copies for myself of some of my books at this point. <laughs> um, but I got frustrated in the, you know, the last, you know, probably about six, seven years ago, because I started trying to invest in more time marketing books on my own. I mean, I, I, all of mine were published with established publishers. Um, and I tried doing more like some YouTube videos and, and more sort of Facebook kind of stuff to, to drive sales. And it didn't really help at all, <laughs> honestly, mm. um, for my stuff. Um, and I even had a couple books that, and this is going to sound like bragging, but I'm saying this to make a point, but they won what are called the National Outdoor Book Awards. Um, and sales dropped like immediately. <laughs> So really, yeah, I can't figure out how that stuff works, but, um, so that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) No, I mean, I blame the publisher, but I think all authors like to blame the publisher for (laughs) lack of sales. They could just be books. Most people don't want, So you know, I can live with that at this point. Um, so I think they were, they were great. Like I said, great projects for me to learn how to do sort of long-term things that aren't just a, you know, weekend shoot or a couple of weeks, but things that, that take a year or two to really concentrate on and focus on, um, which is now paying off as I get more into um, filmmaking stuff. And I've done a couple of long-term, you know, documentary films. And and there's definitely some um, overlap there in the, in the skills I learned from from doing those projects with, with doing these film projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was really curious to, I mean, we'll talk a lot more about your filmmaking in a bit, but I was really curious about your thoughts on kind of the role of photo guidebooks, you know, the pros and cons of kind of their impact on, you know, increased visitation to places and like, how do you balance your commercial needs as a photographer to, you know, put food on the table with this idea that you're hoping to conserve areas and uh, want people to to do more conservation activities, like how do you wrestle with those two things? Right. Yeah, I know it's a big concern of mine. Um, I I think Instagram has been more of a problem than guidebooks. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, but yeah, no, I, I always considered it. And there are places I've left out of some of my guidebooks for that reason. But I remember when I did my first, uh, I guess it was my second guidebook was a, a guidebook to the White Mountain National Forest. And um, I interviewed one of the recreation rangers. And he said, you know, this is back in 2001. So um, before any of us really learned how to find this stuff on the internet. Um, but he said, you know, if, if Backpacker Magazine did a, featured a, you know, three-day backcountry hike um, in the Whites. That meant visitation for that trail would zoom to basically overcrowded status for about two or three years. <laughs> and I thought, wow. hmm, okay, so these things have, definitely have impact. Um, so so for me, when I would write my guidebooks, I, I tried really hard to incorporate leave-no-trace ethics into them um, mm-hmm. so that when people did visit, they were 
aware of um, the potential for causing damage. Um, I think most of, you know, in most cases when it comes to hiking or paddling, um, I, th- I do think it's changed this year. Um, but, you know, at least till, you know, the last few years, um, once you're a mile from the road, there's, there's really not much overcrowding in most places, except on the very, very most popular trails. Um, so I never worried too much about it then, but like I said, there were, there, there were places I kept close to the vest just cause I, you know, there are places I liked to visit without the mobs and, um, not that anyone, any places turned into mobs because of guidebooks I wrote, but <laughs> that's for sure. But, <laughs> um, but definitely I think now I see way bigger problems because of Instagram and, um, iconic photo locations are just being inundated and then new ones created. And then those places get overwhelmed quickly as well. Um, and people don't even need guidebooks. They just need to click on the the map link and in Instagram and they're there. Um, and yeah, that's kind of one of the bummers of uh, <laughs> progress, I guess, because I love Instagram. You know, it's a yeah. great, it's a great platform for, photography but it does um cause some some social issues there i think horseshoe bend horseshoe bend in utah is one of those places i've read about having just insane amounts of uh visitation compared to you know five years ago ten years ago yeah i mean i think that is one of the um advantages of photo guidebooks is that you can um, include information in there to the reader about um, the place in terms of you know things they sh- things they should know about like the the foliage like some of the you know the natural history of a place and give the, give them a greater appreciation of it before they go and also give them you know some tangible tips on how to tread lightly I think to your point Instagram does not typically allow for that type of uh, information to be uh, given to the, to the viewer. And I think that's in part why we see so many people going into the outdoors without, I guess I like to call it common sense, but it's, I know that's not a thing. It's just stuff that I was taught growing up on how to, you know, like how to be a civic minded person in the outdoors in terms of your impact on the place, but also, your impact on other people and that stuff is not being taught on Instagram. (laughs) No. And I think, you know, this year with, with COVID and the work from home crowd, it's, it's not their fault, but you know, there's just so many people who are getting engaged in the outdoors now that never did on a regular basis, which I think is great for them. You know, it's good for, you know, we're all better people when we, when we do that stuff. Um, but they don't, they're not steeped in this sort of culture that sort of, you know, backpackers and wilderness photographers are used to, to reading about and seeing every day of our lives. Um, right. So, it, you know, there's a need to, for those folks to get educated. And, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know the solution for it. I think there's probably just uh, um, a new awareness for recreation managers that this kind of, um, sort of burst in visitation is possible now. Um, and maybe just, you know, changes in signage and things like that are going to, are going to probably come out of this to just to help get some more people educated. Cause I don't, I don't think people are 
you know, purposely trying to screw things up out there. I think they're just, you know, you know, they've never been out there before, you know, <laughs> so they don't know. You can't just right. throw your Snickers wrapper on the bar ground. I mean, it seems like common sense to me, but I think the, uh, the poppy bloom in California this spring was a good example of, of that, um, where that just became an Instagram kind of nightmare of people trampling um, on those poppy fields um, to get their photos. They've seen a million other people getting and they had to get them and they didn't realize, you know, how much damage they could actually do. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what your thoughts are on kind of the the workshop side of photography and, you know, making a living as a nature photographer. I know, you know, a large majority of nature photographers make their living through teaching workshops. And I've heard a lot of workshop leaders say to me um, either indirectly or directly that it's a, there's kind of this conflict um, it, or two conflicting ideas that in order to make money as a workshop leader, you have to take people to these, you know, iconic and rare locations. But on the flip side of that, you're also generating more and more traffic to those places and perpetuating uh, a problem that I don't see it personally see as sustainable in terms of more and more locations becoming these iconic spots that can't handle the visitation they get. So I guess what, what are your thoughts on, you know, if you were a workshop leader wrestling with those two ideals in your mind, like how do I prevent that from happening more but how do I also still make money? Yeah. Um, I don't think I have an answer anyone that teaches workshops going to like. But <laughs> um, yeah, I taught workshops for about twelve, about a dozen years. I was probably doing ten or twelve a year, and I did stop. And I didn't stop because of any sort of philosophical reason at the time. But I, I had a year long battle with cancer in 2014. So I had to cancel all my workshops and, um, you know, try to live, which I did. I'm here. So yay. Yay. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But of course, you know, those sort of experiences have you kind of evaluate your life a little. Um, And I evaluate, was evaluating my business. And, you know, I always, I have two kids and at the time they were, um, you know, 12 and 10 or something. And I, you know, love being a dad's got them in the outdoors as much as possible, spent a lot of time with them, but still the, still my job took me away from them pretty regularly. And I felt like, you know, they're only going to be around another five or six years before they're out of the house. How can I be home a little more often? So workshops was to me, the part of my job I wanted to, um, I'm not answering your question yet, but <laughs> I, I decided to stop doing workshops when I got better. Um, mostly because they seem to happen a lot. You know, I, most of my workshops were four, kind of four-day classes centered around a weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, so to have 10 or 12 weekends booked where I wasn't with my family, and th- that was the time where I got to spend time with my family, it just felt felt like I should try to uh, avoid that till the kids moved out of, moved out of the house. Um, mm-hmm. At that time, I was, uh, there were literally, like when my workshops in Acadia National Park, I think there was one or two other workshop leaders. That's it. Um, I don't know how many, there's probably 20 people that lead workshops up there these days. Um, but I could see the competition starting to grow. Um, it was getting, it was taking a little more work for me to fill my workshops 
um, ahead of time. And it was where I was running into other groups more and more regularly in places where I used to never see anybody. And then it was me and seven or eight people. And then suddenly it was me and two other workshop leaders and 25 people. And I started to see that happening right before I, I quit doing the workshops. And I did start to worry about what you were talking about. I also, for me, with my conservation focus, felt like I didn't always appreciate the workshop experience from my point of view. <laughs> um, because I, you know, and this is true, and it's, you know, it's just the way the business is. But, you know, half, half the people are there just because... They want you to take them to the spot where they're going to get the picture. They're going to put the print on their wall or put in a photo contest. They don't, you know, they know how to use a camera. They know how to use Lightroom. They might not know all the techniques, you know, but they're good enough for what they really want. And they just want you for, to show them where to put the tripod. And that held no appeal to me whatsoever. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's a point where you can live with, that's what you have to do to, to pay the bills. Um, and there were, were always at least a couple people in the class that really were just super engaged learners. And I got a lot of pleasure out of working with those folks. Um, and there was always one or two that were really into conservation too. But for the most part, I felt, I, I didn't always feel like I was having a good time on my own <laughs> leading the workshops. Um, so I decided for all those reasons to try to give them up and see what happened. And, um, and I knew it was going to be hard because it was 25 or 30% of my income at the time. But I figure if I, all that time I spent marketing and, and servicing clients, if I put that into trying to get more of the other kind of work I like, that eventually I would, I would make that up. Um, and I did, it just took probably two or three years to get, get to that point. Um, but I do think it's a real problem now. I mean, it, you know, and not just from, I mean, there is the, problem of overcrowding on the land um, and leave no trace kind of stuff. But also I just, you know, I, I wonder about the point of it <laughs> when, you know, you end up seeing, you know, 500 people with sort of the same photo of Death Valley um, because they all right. went on their workshops out there to go to that. I mean, I, you know, I understand why you'd want to go there. I mean, it's, it's amazing, you know, <laughs> and, you know, everyone wants that shot, but at the same time, like it's kind of, you know, kind of, do we need it anymore? And, um, so I don't know as a work, as a photographer, it's like, okay, is this, you know, it's not like you're mining asbestos or something, you know, to make a living. You're taking right. a few people out, you know, I mean, you're having an impact. We're all having an impact in other ways in our lives. So it's, you know, I think it's up to the individual to kind of really weigh that out and figure out if, if that's the only way and the best way for them to make a living that they're happy with. Um, mm -hmm. But I think the fact you're even aware of it is a positive thing. <laughs> and you can sort of make decisions based on that and try to maybe structure. I mean, if I were still leading workshops, I would try to structure them in ways that avoided some of those iconic spots it's hard to do because your clients are going to beg to go there. <laughs> but if there's a way to structure them where you're teaching them how to make iconic pictures in places they haven't seen in an Instagram a hundred times before, it might actually make for a better product for them in the end. Yeah. You know, as you're talking, I was thinking about the way that I would approach it to, to, if I, I think there's ways to make money as a workshop leader and not, 
have an impact on fragile locations. I think, first of all, being aware of the fact that when you take a large group of people to any given location, you're going to have some kind of impact, even if even if there has already been significant impact to that place, you're not going to make it better by going. Because so, I, I I always hear like, well, people have been going to that spot for years. The inform you know the information's on the internet. It like why why bother trying to prevent prevent it from happening further? And I, I just maybe I'm an idealist, but I, I think that's just a bad I don't know. So poor poor thinking, bad philosophy, like. To me, it's well, um, to me. I mean, they're just describing the fact that they're basically selling a product that someone doesn't really need. <laughs> you know, I mean, someone doesn't need to pay you three thousand dollars to take them to Zabriskie Point or Boulder Beach in Acadia National Park. It's pretty. Doesn't take more than two minutes of searching in the location to find the exact location of. of iconic photos um right and if they think they have to take someone to that place because that's where everyone goes and it's been there for years i think you know in some ways that's the reason not to go there in my you know from my perspective and maybe yeah you know maybe i'm bringing you know for me that's kind of how i approach my landscape photography now anyway on a personal level i'm and part of it's just the kind of work i'm getting i'm not able to shoot in iconic locations anymore um but I almost don't want to. I just, I, I'm not, I, it's just, I don't know. <laughs> Part of it is no, I, 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 like being, I like being alone when I shoot a lot of the time too. And um, a lot of places where I used to go and shoot alone, I, I really, it, it doesn't happen anymore. No, I'm the same way. I don't, I don't thumb my nose at iconic locations because of, because it's already been done before. I thumb my nose at it because I don't like to be around hordes of other people when I'm making photographs like that. It's just the worst experience I can possibly imagine. Um, and I've experienced it a few times, and every time it happens, I'm just disgusted with the whole situation. But I guess the other thing I was going to say about that is it seems to me that there are lots of other things you can teach somebody in photography that doesn't depend on an iconic location, like how to see composition, how to have a relationship with the landscape, how to how how to just see differently, you know, and I think those are the good workshop teachers in my mind is the people that aren't dependent on iconic locations to teach somebody photography. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, I've been blessed that most of my assigned work is to places no one's ever photographed before <laughs> because they're private property in the process of being conserved as either public land or the land trust land, things like that. Um, and, you know, all my work's in New England, so I, you know, I kind of know what stuff's going to look like. There's only a few ways it can look <laughs> in New England, but <laughs> but it's usually, you know, different. And, you know, I don't have a preconceived notion of, of what a place looks like when I go to shoot there. And some places are actually proved very, very hard to shoot because um, they aren't, they just aren't that interesting. <laughs> um, but it's made me a way better photographer being forced to, to shoot in those kind of places. Um, mm -hmm. and I've, I think I've learned a lot of techniques and ideas that I probably don't even consciously, I'm not even consciously aware of now that I employ when I go out on a shoot. Yeah. And I, and I can already hear listeners say, well, if you take them to other places, then those places will also get overrun with people. And I appreciate that perspective as well. But I guess what I'm saying is that if you can have, 
make an evaluation of what your impact is going to be. And if it's not going to have a, a negative impact on a place um, and you can still teach photography, then I think you're, it's a win-win. Yeah. And I think I like how some, some workshop leaders are starting to do much more sort of individual workshops or very small group workshops. Cause that's a, you know, obviously a great way to lessen impact. And you can also, um, I think have a, a better chance of explaining sort of the pitfalls of, of ethics in, in nature, if you have a small group. Yes. Um, and, you know, the other thing, I think it would be awesome if there was a, some way for workshop leaders to coordinate, <laughs> you know, <and> then, <laughs> right. Like, can we all not show up at this place at the same time? Um, you know, cause you know, in Acadia, you might have five or six workshops going on on a weekend now. And um, inevitably, two or three of them will show up at the same sunrise or sunset spot. Um, and, you know, it's not a big park, but there's right. plenty, of, plenty of ways to sort of spread it out if if, if everyone is able to communicate. Um, but, I, you know, not being a workshop leader now, I don't have any idea how that would work in practice. But someone yeah, figure that out for us, please. It's funny, I was thinking about a friend of mine that lives in Telluride and she, she was she invited me to like some house party she was doing and it was the same weekend that I was going to be out teaching a one-on-one workshop and and I told her, yeah, I can't go because I'm teaching a workshop and she's like, oh yeah, you're going to join all the other people up on Last Dollar Road with their tripods and, you know, like kind of making fun of photographers that huddle around the same spots and I think that is, there's a perception out there too of non-photographers like that it's kind of silly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone's getting the same photo. Good for you, you know? Um, uh, we've we've got, um, there's a famous lighthouse 20 minutes up the road from my house um, called Nubble Light on the main coast, which you've, yes, I'm sure I'm you've seen familiar. pictures of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a few times a year where the, the full moon will rise right behind it. And um, yeah, those nights there are often 100, 150 people out there with tripods and their three and three and 400 millimeter lenses and getting it all. They're all lining up behind each other. And it's, <laughs> I don't go, I see the pictures of the crowds on Instagram and I think, yeah, I'm, I'm good without taking that picture, but it must look really hilarious to non-photographers who are just like passing by on their way to dinner or something. Right. Like what is out there? Like the Loch Ness monster or something? Yeah, exactly. Must <laughs> uh, be a great white shark or something. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't um, mean to. I don't mean to demean people that are into that type of photography. I just, I think, uh, it to me, seeing the explosion of the popularity of, through Instagram and other things of different places. I just, I don't think it's sustainable. Not only for the location, but also just the the craft of photography is not sustainable if that's what it is turning into. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't really care if those people want to do that. I think it's great that they're interested <laughs> in photography and being being in these places. Um, I'm, you know, for me, it's just I'm not interested in recreating what everyone else is. But I think we're definitely at a point where there's a real, like, especially with landscape photography. It, it feels to me it's become almost a commodity, um, except for the very, very super creative people, um, which I don't count myself as one of those people. <laughs> um, um, and partly because I don't 
do landscape photography as much as, as I did when I started. Um, but you know, what I, what we landscape photographers used to do in the, you know, film days to create, you know, say a great image of sunrise with a beautiful foreground, um, of wildflowers, whatever it is, you know, you'd need a filter, you know, gradual, you know, neutral density filter. And, um, you'd have to take a couple exposures and hope one of them, you might be able to play with enough when you print it to get detail in both your highlights and your shadows. And it was technically very, very challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, doing that now is pretty easy. <laughs> you know, I mean, an iPhone will do it without you even knowing that you're doing, it's doing it. Um, so, and I don't, you know, I don't have a problem with that, but it just makes the, it makes it more, ubiqu- those kind of photos more ubiquitous. I mean, mm-hmm. the stuff we shot in the nineties on Vel- Fuji Velvia, it looks really sort of cliche and kind of stale now, a lot of it. Um, you know, not all of it. There's some, <laughs> still some amazing work we did back then, but, um, it's compared to what is possible now, um, with 14 stops of dynamic range and Lightroom and Photoshop and all that stuff. Um, it makes sort of a really good photo, super easy to do. It's still hard to do a great photo, but most of the public will look at a really good photo and not necessarily notice the difference between that and a, and a great new sort of creative photo. So for me, that's been the challenge of, that's a challenge for landscape photographers right now is how, how do you create new work of value that says something new and different when there's so many people able to sort of get close to a vision without really a lot, putting a lot of effort behind it. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you know, we could go on Instagram and in an hour we could find probably 500 accounts that are just amazing, um, landscape accounts. Then, you know, we probably wouldn't know three quarters of the photographers on there. I mean, um, so I'm challenged yeah. by this, you know, <laughs> because yeah, absolutely. That, my first love, um, I don't feel like, cause I, am not a print maker. I don't sell print, a lot of prints. I do some, but, um, it's not my main business. Um, but if it were, I would be very challenged by how do I create a, you know, a landscape photo that's saying something new, that's saying what I mean, that's, that's unique enough that someone's going to want to pay me a few hundred dollars to put on their wall. Yeah. For me, I think that starts with, um, kind of some introspection as to why you're making a photograph to begin with, or why you're out there, um, taking photos. Because I think if your why of making a photograph or, or being a photographer is, kind of rooted or, or nested in kind of curiosity of the natural world and, uh, you know, unique experiences that kind of re- require you to maybe be off the beaten path a little bit, things of that nature. I think that is one of the ways in which you can kind of differentiate yourself is, you know, by, by making it personal instead of making it derivative of other people. Yeah, no, I'm glad you said that because I do think people with that approach, like, I feel like I can see the difference between that sort of really good and the great. And I don't, you know, I can't always quantify it other mm-hmm. than <laughs> I can feel like these photos have some soul <laughs> and the, the just sort of good one, really good ones are more like, I don't know, 
to me, it's almost like peak bagging with a camera. Um, you know, you're sort of like, oh, I got to get that shot of delicate arch at, you know, eight o'clock on June 15th, because that's the best time the light does this. And, you know, they just got to check it off their list because that's what everyone gets. Um, as opposed to someone who takes the approach you, that you talked about and understands sort of the, the why, but also the, you know, sort of the story behind what it is they're photographing from a natural history perspective. I think, you know, you don't always necessarily know you're seeing that, but I, I think you can feel that that kind of, um, intuition or knowledge went into a, a good photograph when you, when it's, when it really is told right. Well, and I think, you know, it's a lot, let's be honest too, right? Like it's much, much more difficult to make those types of images work. You know, it takes a lot of mm -hmm. practice and you're going to have a lot of images that are like not that good. <laughs> um, <Yep. laughs> but that's kind of part of the, for me anyway, that's part of the fun and the journey. And I don't mind. I like if I, if I do a weekend of backpacking and I don't get any good photos, I'm okay with that. Cause it, it's to me like the journey and like trying to make the good photo. That's sometimes even more rewarding than the, the, the final photo. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, it's the journey that got me interested in this. That's for sure. Um, and it, you know, it's hard to remember sometimes when it's like yes. a full-time job and you're under deadline and, you know, you know, you have to be home the next day and this is the last two hours of light that you get. And, you know, it, sometimes you don't appreciate <laughs> where you're at and, and what you're doing because you're so uh, focused on um, making the technical part of it happen. But um yeah. I mean, that's, I guess, a metaphor for life, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, you know, that, that approach of, uh, landscape photography, uh, you know, focusing on your why, I think it, it's okay if that still leads you to, to, to making images of uh, iconic places. That's, that's not really the point of what I was trying to say. You know, it's more that if you start with the why and focus on that, I think sometimes it'll help you differentiate yourself from from the rest of the rest of the pack <laughs> yeah no definitely i know um it's one of the first uh sort of conservation photographers i met um and got to know was gary brosh who uh fortunately passed away a few years ago but he was from the pacific northwest he did just amazing work for life magazine audubon all these places but um he really sort of Put it in my head that um, becoming a better naturalist was going to make me a better photographer. So, um, you know, and, and Galen Rowell talked about this too. Like the more you understand your subject, the more you're sort of, he talked about participating in the landscape, but the more you're sort of part of what it is you're shooting and working on and um, the more you're going to know those stories and they're going to just sort of translate to your photos, sometimes consciously and sometimes unconsciously. Um, and for me, yeah, no, I still, you know, sometimes I just get a shot cause I end up in the right place at the right time and everything just looks really pretty. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no why behind it other than, wow, this looks awesome. Um, but, uh, you know, I think long-term sort of the, the body of work comes from that sort of more deliberate approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up Galen Rao too, cause you can really tell that, you know, he, he, has a very he's very he was very curious about the places that he photographed and i think 
that curiosity of the place and trying to understand it and like you said, participate in it can lead to making some very well, let's unique talk a little bit about your transition to video work. Can speak to people. It sounds like uh for you it was kind of out of curiosity first to start with and then um what you've done with it since is uh leverage it to start to create some documentary films yeah i i I never was interested in it partly because i hated carrying a lot of gear around (laughs) (laughs) yeah no kidding you know and um but when Canon came out with the 5D Mark II and it was like, okay, I can actually, all I really need is a microphone to add to my kit and I can actually maybe create some little short video pieces about some of the conservation projects I was working on. Um, I got interested in doing that. And, and mostly because, you know, I just met, you know, often met really kind of really interesting people who, you know, you can tell their story through photographs and writing, but often it's, you know, just really cool that, hear them speak as well. Um, so that's kind of what piqued my interest. And, um, and I actually got my, my first paying video gig by showing a client, someone else's video online (laughs) and said, Hey, we could try something like that. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) Um, had no clue what I was doing. Um, but, um, but yeah, so that just inspired me to kind of try it out. And, and, you know, it was, from a photographer standpoint, a lot of it's intuitive, right? I mean, the visuals are, you know, it's not that much different. You have to learn to kind of work with motion a little bit, but a lot of good sort of short documentary pieces, you you don't need a lot of fancy camera work, but as a landscape photographer, I could really make things, you know, make the films look beautiful pretty easily without having to learn anything new. Um, It was, you know, the sound recording interviews was the, you know, the bane of my existence and it it's still a challenge sometimes. Um, but, uh, but, it, but it was an easy transition to at least start trying to tell stories that way. And, mm-hmm. and I had clients who were interested in, in doing that too, because just, you know, the, the growth of Facebook and the way people were interacting with content online sort of made it more interesting to my clients at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of how I got hooked on it. And then, um, and then about eight years ago, a very controversial um, electro- electricity transmission project was announced in New Hampshire. And one of my clients asked me to shoot some short interviews with people who'd be impacted by this. Um, and I got so into their stories. There was so much emotion in these people's voices that I decided to um, do a Kickstarter to raise money to, to do a, a feature length documentary on that project. So that was my first foray into that. Awesome. For the um, kick, I'm curious about the Kickstarter aspects. What were you trying to fund, I guess, just your time and effort? Yeah. I mean, I knew I couldn't probably fund paying myself like I really deserved, (laughs) but I I wanted to raise enough money to, to film for a couple months um, and do post-production for about a month. was kind of my goal. goal. And I really did that. And that's when I was into the time-lapse stuff. I just bought a pocket dolly with the controllers and all this stuff. Um, and this one of the big um, problems with this transmission line project was it was going to traverse the White Mountain National Forest and actually cross the Appalachian Trail. So to me, for the film, 
I, it was really important for me to get some backcountry time-lapse footage of those places so it would appeal to people who didn't live right in the power line corridor, but mm-hmm. to also to people throughout New England who actually love to go hiking in those places and camping in those places. Um, so that meant having to have like a little crew that would carry the, you know, the extra 30 pounds of gear for eight or 10 miles and spend the night out and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, the Kickstarter was, <laughs> so it had its issues, but we, I raised 35 grand, which was great. Um, but I, I launched it and I don't know if it's still this, I haven't done a Kickstarter since this was 2013. Um, but at the time you couldn't, once you launched a campaign, you couldn't stop it. It's basically Uh, like, uh so you say, okay, it's going to run for 30 days or it's going to run for 60 days. And once you launch it, that's what you're doing. Um, and I launched mine and then two hours later, the, uh, Boston marathon terrorist bombing happened. Um, That's great timing. And, you know, a lot of my sort of targeted funding crowd was in the Boston area. Um, So I was really at a loss for what to even do. Like, was it even right to be promoting my Kickstarter, asking people for money? And, and, uh, you know, obviously we were all very just worried about what was happening. Um, So I just laid low for a week and I kind of assumed it wasn't, Kickstarter wasn't going to work because um, you need to really make a good 20, 30% of your funding in that first five or six days to have a good chance mm-hmm. of success. Um, but luckily, you know, I work with a lot of clients who are fundraising all the time for the nonprofits and um, they gave me a lot of advice for how to approach it. And eventually I was able to start asking people again, but I always felt behind on it. And um, yeah, didn't I did make my funding goal, but not, literally till the last few hours of the camp. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, I, I think, that, you know, that 30 days I worked harder than <laughs> any of the 30 days where I was actually filming probably. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> Cause I was doing a lot of podcast stuff and doing some radio stuff and writing a blog post every day and guest blog posts. And I would literally walk around town with flyers and just, <laughs> if I ran into someone, hand them that it was not my personality at all but um right i just was really really dedicated to telling that story um so great i was grateful that we um succeeded at that and then uh and i finished production and and got my cancer diagnosis a week later so that <laughs> that kind of screwed up the post-production plan oh my um, gosh yeah so it came out so um yeah but, you know, I did finish the film about a year later than I had planned, but um, it and still turned out done, to... And you've done other films as well, right? Yeah, so that was my first feature length, and I just uh, released my second feature length film this, this spring. Um, and it's about the Merrimack River, which is uh, in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and it was listed as one of the most endangered rivers in the country a few years ago. Um, and it's, you know, if you took American history, you probably learned about the Industrial Revolution and the Lowell Mills and the Lowell Girls and all that kind of stuff and the textile mills. And that's all happened on the Merrimack. Um, so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of really rich subject matter there that that we wanted to explore. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And what what uh, what are you doing with with these types of films? Like what is the target audience and how do you how do, what's this, your distribution model? <laughs> yeah, so we uh, 
yeah, we finished finished the film right as all the movie theaters closed. <laughs> so that kind of put a crimp in our distribution model. <laughs> um, so, I mean, our plan was for just sort of regional, um, like one-off events um, in theaters with the film to uh, build awareness, do like panel discussions about the issues surrounding uh, the river and, and that sort of thing. So um, we, we couldn't do that, <laughs> right. um, but we, we, um, we talked to New Hampshire public television. Um, so they, they ended up premiering it on, um, on their, their channel in July, which was great. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. And actually during, during the filming, um, someone watching it called. So I, I partnered with, uh, an NGO called the society for the protection of New Hampshire forests. So they, they were the producers and, and funders of the film. Um, and while the film was showing on New Hampshire public television for the first time, um, their concert, one of their conservation people got a phone call from a person with land on the river who wanted to, uh, donate it, um, for conservation. So we're like, all right, that's sweet. <laughs> made, our money, made our money back right there. Um, so now we're, um, so there is, uh, something called the Merrimack conservation partnership here where there's about 35 organizations, land trusts and other sort of city organizations that work, um, on managing the watershed. And so we're screening it through the various partners in that partnership, um, mostly like online zoom kind of screenings with, you know, 50 to a couple hundred people at a time Mm -hmm. and then having a little discussion afterwards. Um, and we're just, I think gonna release it online on YouTube today. I think it might actually be live today. So (laughs) I'll have to check on that. Cool. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, we'll definitely put a link to that, uh, in the show notes so that people can check it out. Yeah. Um, so this one was fun. I got to have, a, you know, wasn't without his challenges. It took us four years, um, you know, and there's probably 50 days of filming total, um, over that four years. Uh, but, uh, you know, probably about half those days I was able to have a crew of three or four folks with me, um, you know, with some multiple cameras and a sound guy and a uh, guy with a gimbal and stuff like that, which was, uh, really fun. You know, it's so different than, you know, sort of the lone wolf landscape photographer <laughs> world that I started. Right. Like, it's like, okay, I have to manage my, my energy level <laughs> and the weight of my pack. <laughs> That's about it. And, and, and now it's, you know, you know, you got to manage four or five people and, you know, get, have the right amount, you know, the right amount of gear and all the gear, you got to rent gear and get it all and hope the weather works out and hope your person you're interviewing doesn't freak out and <laughs> all that kind of stuff. <laughs> And then you're right, still left with six months of work after you're done shooting, you know? Yeah. Did, did you, uh, did you outsource the, the, um, post-production or did you, were you heavily involved in that? Yeah, no, I did all the editing of that myself. Um, Ooh. yeah, <laughs> it's fun though. Actually, I like it. I, I, I mean, for me, you know, I just, you know, all these little new areas in my career are just sort of new challenges that I, that just keep the creative kind of part of my mind active because I'm getting old. I'm 55 now. So, you know, it's hard for me to go out and look at a landscape and really photographically think of something new, <laughs> honestly, yeah. you know, it's like, I've been doing the same thing for a long time and it's hard to sometimes change that. But, um, mm-hmm. I find by getting into things like time-lapse and drones and GoPros and 
having to edit films that it informs my still photography in ways too that I don't even realize sometimes. Yeah, um, that's that's awesome. I um I started vlogging this year, um, which for years I was like that seems kind of silly, um, but I was like, you know what, that actually might be fun. So I started doing it, and same thing, like uh, having to think about how to tell a story through video, it really does make you more creative in terms of seeing the world a little differently. And I, I've been I've been enjoying video myself. Oh, that's cool. So how often do you do you do one of those vlogs? Well, my goal <laughs> my goal was to do it every week. Um and I had a nice three weeks stretch of of releasing videos and I just you know, I do this podcast every week and plus I have a full time job and blah blah blah. So that that streak ended pretty quickly, but <laughs> I continued to record all through the summer. So I have I have like months and months and months worth of content. I just haven't put it into any videos yet. So it's hard. (laughs) Uh, There's always something that uh, gets in the way of those personal things. (laughs) For sure. Those personal projects are always competing with with the real world, unfortunately. (laughs) Yep, exactly. Um, But yeah, it's been fun. Are you, I have two what teenagers. You, That's usually what competes with my <laughs> personal projects. <laughs> what are you using to edit? I'm using uh, Premiere. Uh-huh. Yeah, same. And, uh, yeah, I like it most of the time, but I not all the time. So. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's I'm, powerful. I, it's just like, for me, it's like, I know what I want to do. I just don't know how. <laughs> that was the hardest part of start learning this stuff. Because I remember when I first started editing video, like, oh, I'll just Google, like, look for a tutorial on how to do this. But I wouldn't even know what to call what I needed to do. Yes. <laughs> to Google it. <laughs> so I'm like, that makes it kind of hard to figure this out. And, uh, right. And I know that there's so much more that I that I probably could learn that, that would make my videos better. It's just a matter of, like, taking the time to educate myself on it. <laughs> yeah. my uh, I think my... One of my things I want to learn to excel more at is uh, the transition part of things. Um, I mean, with my docs, they're pretty standard kind of, you know, nature slash Ken Burnsy kind of in their style. So I don't need fancy kind of transitions. But I do see, I mean, a lot of the content, people do some really cool things and you have to plan for them while you're shooting. And that's something I'm still trying to kind of learn and and figure out. but yeah, now the thing with Premiere that gets me is every once in a while, when you get a big project like this Merrimack film thing is like, you know, works fine one day and then I open it up and suddenly I can't recognize half a dozen files for whatever reason and I don't know what why. <laughs> you know, oh my gosh. That kind of stuff drives me crazy. And then um, your heart starts racing like, oh no. <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh, I'll just go in. I just need to like render a new like hd version of the film today to send to whoever and i ends up taking like seven hours or something you know right um that's everyone you know most of the time i love premiere um you know it's you know you have to have a good system that can handle it because once you start layering three or four 4k video files with graphics and all that and you know color correction you know there's a lot of data being processed there. So you need a lot of 
lot of computer power, but, um, yeah, I just, um, once you have it, it's, you know, you can do amazing things with it. So, yeah, I, back in April, I, or I guess it was May, I built a new computer from scratch just for that purpose, like to edit video and just be faster with post-processing and stuff. It's been, it's been really fun. (laughs) Yeah. It makes a big difference. Yeah. Huge. huge. I was always afraid to do that, build my own. And then, uh, my daughter wanted to do it and she was buying all the parts with her own money. So I'm like, cool. So (laughs) I did it with basically did it with her and, uh, it was surprisingly easy. <laughs> yeah, once you, you do it. If you have all the right components, it. everything worked great. Yeah, and I, there's a really great website. I think it's PC Parts Picker, where it just like it tells you if something's compatible or not. And oh, um, cool. Yeah. Anyway, if anyone ever wants to know about building computers, we could. I could probably talk for hours about that because it is a yeah. lot of fun, but it's also <laughs> nerve wracking the day you start putting it all together because you're like, I hope I don't break something. Oh, I know. Yeah. All those little, all those little pins and stuff. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> well, all awesome. Right. There's Jerry. a tangent for you. <laughs> right. Well, speaking of tangents, uh, kind of wrapping up here, I'm curious, who would you be interested uh, for us to have here on the podcast? Oh, um, yeah. There's a couple, a uh, couple conservation themed folks that your audience might not have heard before. Um, one is a guy down in Florida, Max Stone. Um, he does a lot of cool landscape, but also really amazing sort of conservation documentary photography, um, not only in the Southeast, but um, in parts of Asia as well. So definitely check him out. And he's one of those guys like, like I don't know, living in New England, like I never worry about putting my like Keens on and walking into a little swampy area or anything because we don't have alligators and cottonmouths and <laughs> Right. Rattlesnakes, but you know he's got pictures of you know he he could have been brushing the teeth of some of these gators and crocodiles he's shooting, and I I'm always been impressed by that. No doubt, <laughs> more than anything. Um, you so he's some really cool. I've known him since he was uh, he was actually a high school scholarship student at a Nanpa summit I went to back in uh, the early 2000s. So I've known him since then. Um, and now he just does amazing work. Um, and then Christina Mittermeier, um, is, she was one of the founders of the international league of conservation photographers. And, uh, now her and her partner, Paul Nicklin have a, um, organization called sea legacy up near Vancouver. And she, you know, the two of them together, but her, you know, especially just her breadth of, of work around the world with, with nature and indigenous peoples is um, just amazing. And um, I think she'd be a great interview because she, you know, she really kind of coined the the whole idea of the whole term of conservation photography. So that's you should awesome. check her out if you can get her to talk. <laughs> yeah. That's always the, that's always the fun part. <laughs> <laughs> trying to, trying to reel them in. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you could do it. I'll help you. Oh, I love, I, I would love some help with that. Well, awesome, Jerry. This has been a lot of fun and I really appreciated uh, spending the time uh, talking to you about these important topics and just wanted to convey to you that I appreciate all the work you're doing around conservation issues and I hope you continue to do it as long as you can. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate that and I uh, appreciate the opportunity to, to talk with you today. Yeah. 
All right, well, thanks to Jerry for joining me on the podcast and for his excellent work on conservation issues. The more and more I get into photography, the more I am recognizing the inseparable bond between landscape and nature photography and issues of conservation. If the natural world that we love to photograph is not protected in a thoughtful and balanced way from overcrowding, pollution, trash, mining, deforestation, and the inevitable impacts of overconsumption by our society, we will no longer have places to photograph. This might not be apparent in the United States where public land has long held a somewhat sacred place in the hearts of many, especially in the West. However, our friends in Europe, where public land is almost non-existent, understand the perils of this all too well. I urge us all to do what we can for conservation, especially if we rely on these places for financial income. This can take on many forms such as volunteering, donating, or being a voice to your audience about these important topics. My hope is that more and more people taking up photography embrace these values, and that is one of the reasons I have continued to be a voice for these topics through this podcast. The support of the podcast from our listeners is how I can keep doing this important work, so thank all of you that have supported us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash fstopandlisten. Well, I've been really busy recording new podcasts and envisioning new content for listeners. Coming up, we have an episode with a hobbyist photographer, uh, Tara Workman. Tara is an African-American physician and photographer living in Portland, Oregon. We discuss how her journey in photography has morphed over the past several years, having been influenced heavily early on by social media. I've also recorded with two photographers living in Portland, Maine, Ella and Knapp Hudson. Ella and Knapp help run and manage one of the oldest and long-running photography clubs in the United States. Those of you that are involved in running photography clubs will be really interested in this episode. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.